Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of re reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of re reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the reading of God's word. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. <clears throat> let, me, uh, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Uh, Lord, we thank you just for your word. And, you know, as it was uh, read to us, we thank you, God, that your word comes with power. Uh, because your spirit and word uh, are powerful. And we, we ask that this time would be blessed by you. And not only would you instruct us and teach us, but you would transform us by the power of your word and spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in a series on first on Second Corinthians. Oh, you know, we started having scripture readers, and I made the mistake of putting all the passages as First Corinthians. Actually, we're in Second Corinthians. And... You know, what I want to do today is I actually want to start by thinking about motivation because we all know that motivation is something that is important and something that we, we need. And oftentimes our level of motivation will probably determine whether we are uh, successful in what we are supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, during the pandemic early on, there was a documentary, I think a seven or eight part documentary that came out on Michael Jordan. And I don't know if you saw it. It was called The Last Dance. And one of the things that you realize very quickly about Michael Jordan and his greatness is that he found ways to motivate himself. And so what Jordan would do is he would interpret these like small moments in life and he would take it as a personal offense against him. So it could have been like a basketball coach that just walked by him in a restaurant and didn't stop and say hi. He took that personally. Uh, it could have been someone in the media saying this other player, Clyde Drexler, was uh, on a similar level as him. And he's like, what? And he took that personally. There is this one story that I thought was kind of humorous in there that encapsulates the kind of athlete Michael Jordan was uh, involving a basketball player named LeBradford Le Smith. And you may not know him because <coughs> he was not very well known and he was not at the same level of Michael Jordan. But when LeBradford Smith was a rookie, uh, he did have an amazing game against Michael Jordan where he scored 37 points against him. And after the game, Jordan claimed that Smith said to him, nice game Mike and he took that personally 
Now, they happened to be playing each other the, the next night. He was on the Washington Bullets at the time, so they played in Chicago. Next night, they flew to Washington, and they played again. And Jordan said, I am going to score as many points on this guy as he scored in the first half as he scored on me the entire game. So the first half of that game, Jordan actually ended up scoring 36 points in the first half, and he, he annihilated right, this rookie basketball player, LeBradford Smith. Now, here's what the funny thing is about that is uh, LeBradford Smith always denied. He's like, I never said anything to Michael Jordan, right? So it's always kind of this mystery of like, oh, ooh, like what actually happened? And many years later, Jordan actually admitted. He's like, yeah, I made that story up. Now, why would you make that story up of somebody saying nice game, Mike, which doesn't even sound that bad, uh, but why would you even make that story up? And the reason he did, and I think not just made that story up for other people, but he probably made it up in his own mind to give him extra motivation, to feed into this uh, desire to be a great basketball player, to uh, beat this team. And it's a little bit over the top, but as you watch the documentary, you, re you realize that's part of what made Michael Jordan who he was. He could find anything and use it as motivation, and that motivation was able to drive him to become the great basketball player that he was. We all need motivation uh, to drive us to a certain extent in life because a lot of the things that we have to do in life, we probably just don't want to do, but we know we have to do it. Personally, I have a very hard time exercising, and the reason why it's hard to exercise is because I really feel like zero motivation to uh, exercise, to go outside and run. And usually when I'll feel the most motivated to exercise is after I visit the doctor and I get a physical, and the doctor says, oh, your cholesterol is a little bit high, uh, you really need to start exercising at your age, uh, then I'll feel a little bit of motivation. Uh, and when I exercise, you know what actually motivates me to, uh, to do the exercises? It's actually public shame. So a few years ago, I took some Pilates classes with someone from church, and a lot of the exercises were very difficult, and I really wanted to stop, and it was painful, and I wanted to give up. But the only reason I didn't stop and give up is because there's other people in the class, and I didn't want to be the only one to give up and say, I can't do it, right? So motivation is like this fuel that drives the engine within us to, to keep going. And not only do we need motivation for things like our work and things like our physical health, but we also need motivation for our spiritual health, right? So there are things we know that we ought to do, uh, but we don't do them because we just don't feel motivated to do them. Whether that is prayer, whether that's, you know, reading the Bible and meditating on scripture, whether it's things like serve the poor, whether it's reconciling a relationship, uh, or anything else that uh, a follower of Jesus is called to do, we may not do them. Why? Because we don't feel motivated to do them. And I don't really think Michael Jordan's method of generating motivation helps us spiritually because uh, Jordan's motivation wasn't always rooted in reality. Uh, but what we see in this passage, thankfully, is Paul shows us that we do have the ultimate source of motivation, and he talks about what motivates him in his ministry. Now, we're in a section here where Paul, he is still making a defense of, of his ministry to the Corinthians, and here he's, he's trying to show them what drives him, what compels him, what motivates him, and it's not money. Otherwise, he wouldn't have worked as a tent maker and he wouldn't have refused payment for his teaching and preaching. Uh, it's not achievement or a success. Otherwise, he wouldn't divulge as much information as he did about how difficult his life was and how difficult his ministry was. 
Uh, it's certainly not power, otherwise he wouldn't have embraced his weakness and his lack of rhetorical skills and his lack of worldly influence as readily as he does. So money, success, power, often things that motivate people are not the things that motivate Paul. What motivates him? Uh, I think verse 14 sums it up. He says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, what he's saying is this, the love of Christ, that is the very thing that, right, he uses the word controls, that Greek word can also be translated uh, compels. That is the very thing that drives Paul to live in the way that he does. If you think about Paul's life, there are all kinds of reasons why he probably should have quit apostolic ministry. Uh, and he talks about some of them later on in this book. You know, he's somebody that's been beaten with rods. He has been shipwrecked. He has been robbed. He has been imprisoned. He's gone through periods where he went hungry and he was thirsty. And so what kept Paul going? He says it here. He's driven. He's compelled. He's controlled. He's motivated by the love of Christ. Now, l- love is a very powerful force and I think we all know that so whether it's uh, the love that a parent has for a child whether it's a love amongst friends whether it's uh, love between romantic partners love can make people do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do right Uh, Shakespeare I think has a great way of showing us the power of love and sometimes that love is foolish sometimes that love is life-giving but nevertheless that love is powerful So maybe his most famous play in Romeo and Juliet, Juliet's love for Romeo leads her to deny her family, right, because the families were um, feuding, right, deny her family, fake her own death so that she can be free to marry her love, Romeo. Uh, Shakespeare also has a way of tragedy because Romeo, unaware of the scheme uh, of faking Juliet's death, sees Juliet and thinks that she really died and he's so distraught that he ends up killing himself Juliet wakes up and then sees Romeo dead she's so distraught that she kills herself as well now um, that's how the play ends in tragedy and I think C.S. Lewis said something to the effect that love becomes a demon when it becomes a god and maybe that's what Romeo and Juliet shows but uh, whether Shakespeare is trying to show us the delight of love or the folly of love what he's very good at is showing us the power of love love was so powerful that it led these two characters to do what they did But human love always has its problems, and it always has its limitations because human love is ultimately only a derivative of God's love. God's love is the only kind of true and original love because God himself is love. God himself personifies love, which makes God's love much more superior than all other forms of love. And what Paul is talking about here is Christ's love, and he talks about it as a power that compels him to live in a certain way. Uh, What kind of life does the love of Christ compel him to live? Well, you read further in verse 15, and it says the the love of Christ compels him so that he would no longer live for himself, but for him who was raised. And I don't know, I think when we read that, uh, no longer living for self, but living for Christ, we maybe interpret that or read that kind of as an imperative And I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but that's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying, hey, God's commanding us not to live for ourselves, and therefore we need to stop living for ourselves. I think his emphasis is not on the uh, inner person generating the will to not live for ourselves. I actually think he's saying the opposite of that. 
He is saying the love of Christ, right, from the outside has come and taken hold of me in such a way that I can no longer live for myself, but I have to live for Christ. Something outside has come and invaded his heart in such a way that it has changed his orientations. It has compelled him to live in such a, a certain way. And so this power comes not by within us generating uh, a will within us. This power ultimately comes by grace. It comes by grace, and it's one that we certainly need, especially in our culture. You know, in Western culture, uh, Western culture tends to be oriented around the individual, whereas uh, other cultures tend to be oriented around the community. And if you are uh, children of uh, immigrants and you know the differences between like first generation and second generation uh, Asian cultures, maybe you, you know the differences and you're more aware of the, the differences there. But you can, you can kind of see it in terms of how identity is formed in different kind of cultures. So in Western culture, uh, identity tends to be formed around individual traits and personal achievements and personal desires. Uh, but communal cultures tended to form identity around communal traits like uh, your family, so your last name would be important, or your religious affiliation, or things like national identity. Uh, and I'm not necessarily saying individualism is a bad thing because there are some good things that came out of it. So, for example, I don't know if the civil rights movement would have had the momentum that it did unless there was uh, some individualism. Sometimes you need people to be individualistic in order to break away from communities that have values that need to be changed. But there is a danger to an individualistic culture in that it is very easy to elevate yourself above uh, the community, which ultimately ends up hurting both you and the community. Uh, I thought Stephen Colbert had a way of putting it indirectly or gave a great illustration on how this might work. Uh, he recently had this interview with the Wall Street Journal on, I saw it on YouTube, and you know, one of the questions that he was asked was, what is the trait that was most important to your success? And you kind of assume he's going to say, well, I, uh, I was part of this. I think he went to Second City or something, wherever his training was. He's like, well, that was most important to my success, or this mentor was most important to my success, uh, or you know, my ability to like, really think quickly about jokes and character and those kind of things led to my success. He doesn't say any of those things. You know what he says is the most important trait for his success? Uh, he, he says it's love, right? He initially, he says it's the ability to listen, but that takes him to a place where love is the most important thing. And what a strange way to answer that question. But then he, he begins to explain it. And he says, you know, when he used to teach an improv class, what he would tell his students is this. He would say, the most important person on stage is not you. And you have to understand that, right? If you want to be a good performer, the most important person on stage is not you. It's the other people on stage with you. And that enables you to listen to the other performers, and that ultimately serves the entire performance and makes a beautiful performance on stage. And he didn't say this part, but I would imagine that if you do think you are the most important performer on the stage, it could feed your ego, and that can make you feel good for a little bit. But you know what that also means? It means you have to carry the burden of the entire performance on yourselves, including the parts that you don't really have control <laughs> over, right? That burden falls on you, the individual, if you are the most important person on stage. And that, of course, doesn't serve the individual well, and it doesn't serve the entire community well. Uh, and I thought that was actually a really great illustration for um, illustrating the dynamics of why making much of yourself not only hurts uh, the entire community, but it also hurts you. Uh, there's this video, again, another YouTube video. Um, <coughs> there's a video that came up on my YouTube feed. 
and it said, listen to an expert's advice on the fundamental truth about love. And I don't know how this video came up. Like these YouTube algorithms are amazing, right? It must have known I was thinking about love this week as I was preparing this sermon because this is not a video that would regularly come up on my feed. And this is not a video that I would typically click, but I was thinking about love and I said, oh, YouTube knows what I'm doing, so let me click it. I clicked it. The video starts. Uh, there's a group of couples and they're, they're sitting in this circle. And one of the couples, they're in the middle of this argument and they're fighting with each other. And then uh, I guess the person leading that group, the, the expert, interrupts and says this, says, friends, can I share something with you right now? He starts talking about his own life. And th there's like music to make it really dramatic. He talks about his own life, what he went through uh, after he went through his own uh, personal divorce. And he says, I was sitting with my nine-year-old daughter and she asked me the question that I've been dreading uh, ever since I got divorced. She says, why did you and mom get divorced? And he says, well, honey, we just weren't compatible. And then she says to him, well, then why don't you find somebody that's compatible? And he says, well, you know, I'm too busy. Uh, I, I don't have enough time to meet people. And then she says to him, dad, I think you're lying, right? Then he, then he's, he like is taken aback and he says, all right, this is why I don't really have much to offer. And I don't ex remember his exact words, but this is like the summary of what he says. He's like, I'm a, I'm a broken man and I don't know if anybody would want me. And as he's telling this story, right, the camera zooms into his face and there's uh, a lot of dramatic music in the background and you can sense that it's reaching this emotionally powerful climax. And then the video climaxes to where he says, and my daughter says to me, boom, how can you teach me to love if you can't even love yourself? And I have to admit, the combination of the music and the dramatic storytelling is extremely compelling and powerful, so much so that if I weren't more discerning, I would probably say, yeah, that sounds right, <laughs> right? Because it feels right. And I was like looking at the comments, there's over 500 comments, and I wanted to see what other people thought about this video. I tried to find one negative comment about, or uh, one comment about anything critical about what he said, and I couldn't find one. I, I, and I didn't look at all 500, I probably looked at 50 or so, right? I could not find one. Uh, why? Because I think it's actually a very popular thing to say in our Western culture that elevates the self, that the most important love is self-love. Right? If you struggle with acceptance, the problem is you, that you don't accept yourself. Uh, and the reason why that sounds attractive is because many of us, all of us, we struggle with that. We struggle with our flaws and we struggle with our failures and we struggle with our sense of inadequacy. And so to hear that we need to learn to love ourselves and accept ourselves, uh, it feels right. Especially in our culture that, again, elevates the individual. But I think, ultimately, it's going to fall short because it's still telling you that you have to generate acceptance, you have to generate love, you have to generate that security that you desperately want, that you have to generate that from yourself. And are we really that strong to be able to do that in a stable, consistent basis for our entire lives? I think what that ultimately does is it further enslaves us to ourselves when what we really need is freedom from ourselves. Now, in order to break free from ourselves, again, we need more than just a strong will uh, or a capacity to love ourselves. That would actually feed into this modern Western narrative that the answer is within us. We need a greater power than ourselves to be able to drive us away from ourselves. 
And the only way we will be driven away from ourselves is when we know one who is worthy of greater esteem than us. Uh, but knowing someone who is so worthy can potentially have the effect of pushing us away. So we not only need to know that this person is incredibly worthy, but that this person has a love that is so wonderful that it actually draws us in and draws us closer. Now, this is a sermon in a church, and so it's no secret. You know who I'm referring to, right? Uh, the only person who can be that is Jesus. Uh, we need to know Jesus is incredibly worthy. We need to esteem him. Uh, and in prior passages, Paul says that God lifts the veil so that we might see the glories of Christ. And that's how we will know that Jesus is worthy. But the second part of that is this. Our glorious Christ, the one that we ought to highly esteem, he has shown us the greatest love that no one could ever show us so that his holiness, so that his glory, so that his worthiness, it doesn't actually repel us and push us away. But now it's able to draw us into himself, you know, like a powerful magnet. And it's only when we realize that the glorious one died on this cross that we can now be reconciled to God. And that's when we'll know this great power, this kind of love that Paul is talking about here that compels him, that controls him to no longer live for himself, but for the one who was raised. Now, I spent a lot of this sermon just kind of looking at those two verses. There really are a lot of other wonderful things in this passage, uh, but I will have to gloss over them a bit uh, uh, for the sake of time. But, you know, if you look at the second half of the passage, Paul expounds on the love of Christ by framing it in the context of reconciliation. Uh, verse 18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. You know that language of reconciliation? It addresses a very deep problem, the problem of alienation. Alienation is, is always extremely painful. Uh, different disciplines have their own versions. Uh, there's psychological alienation. There's social alienation. Um, you know, even uh, if you've been following the news and you kind of see what's happening in Ukraine, and you see families being uh, separated and torn apart because of this war, alienation is an isolation and separation. All of those things are incredibly painful, always. But the alienation, according to the Bible, that is the biggest problem for us is a spiritual alienation. It's the one that has separated us from God. And you can actually summarize the entire biblical narrative, the entire Bible story, as one of alienation and reconciliation, all the way from the beginning of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, where sin and disobedience leads to the alienation of humanity from God. Uh, the story of the Bible is basically God's attempting now to bring about reconciliation so that we would no longer be alienated from him. And if you remember, even in the previous passage, we talked about this theme of home and belonging. And this lack of belonging that we, we, we may feel in this life and this loss of home is a product of spiritual alienation. Paul says that God addresses our alienation by giving us this wonderful ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, this great exchange has occurred where now Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
that in Christ, Jesus himself experienced ultimate alienation from his Father so that we might not now no longer be called sojourners or aliens to God. In Christ, Jesus became the ultimate exile so that we now might be welcomed into our Father's heavenly home and find that place of belonging that we all long for. You see, that is the kind of love that compels Paul to stop living for himself and to live for Christ. That's the kind of love that transforms how he, he views others and he says he no longer regards them according to the flesh but now regards them as new creations. That's the kind of love that compels Paul to say, I'm an ambassador for Christ, making an appeal to others to be reconciled to Christ as he preaches this gospel. These are all things, um, friends, that probably deserve a lot more time to reflect upon, uh, but I just can't do it today. But these are the things that the love of Christ compels Paul to do. Now, <clears throat> let, me, let me kind of bring it back to where we started, and uh, let, me, let me conclude this by saying something about motivation. You know, we, we do know that the love of Christ should compel us, should drive us, uh, but at the same time, it's, it's also very easy to be driven by other things, to be motivated by other things. And so I think it would be beneficial to ask, what happens when the love of Christ doesn't drive us? And let me be a little bit more specific. What happens when the love of Christ doesn't drive Christian believers, the church? Um, I heard this chapel message given uh, a few years ago. And it was given to a bunch of seminary students. And so these are future pastors who are uh, intending to go into ministry. And the speaker is essentially giving a warning about ministry. And he said, uh, when you enter the ministry, it will either make you a better Christian or a worse Christian. Uh, it will either make you softer and more tender, or it will make you more pharisaical and more hypocritical. Why? Well, he explains it this way. He says, Min being in ministry requires you to have a genuine affection for Christ. And when you preach on Sundays, your preaching is supposed to come from a place of genuine adoration because you've been touched by the beauty of God, by the love of Christ, and your preaching is an outflow of that. But you know what often happens to ministers is uh, they begin to neglect their prayer lives and their devotional lives. And even when they do that, still have to get up on Sunday and you have to talk about Jesus as if his love is wonderful. And so the only thing you can do at the end of the day is all you can do is fake it. And that's where the hypocrisy begins. That's when the outer life becomes much more important than the inner life. That's when uh, things like talents and gifts of the Spirit and outward success and achievement become much more important than the fruit of the Spirit and the character that's being developed by a abiding in Christ and being in loving devotion to Him. What happens when our outer life becomes much more important than our inner life? You end up becoming like the Corinthians, right? You start to glory in your gifts and achievements and letters of recommendation. Uh, those kind of things actually ultimately potentially lead to division and factions because now it makes certain people feel superior and inferior to others when they compare themselves to others. It means you have to now build this uh, false identity around your gifts and around your achievements because you don't really have a true identity that rests in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And, of course, uh, that talk was directed to ministers, and so, of course, I receive that, um, I receive that powerfully. Um, but I also wonder if it also applies uh, to those of you 
in the pews. You know, if you are a Christian, and if you don't, if you're not compelled by the love of Christ, uh, what it does mean is you're going to have to fake it. You're going to have to fake your spirituality, uh, which is going to make you turn you into a hypocrite. Uh, you're going to have to just dwell more on the outer things uh, and be anxious about the outer things rather than worrying about how the Spirit is changing you from the inside and renewing you inwardly. And so to live a life that is not compelled by the love of Christ is a very dangerous, spiritually dangerous thing, friends. And so what ultimately we need is we need to know the love of Christ. We need that power to come by way of the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts, to be the very thing that controls us, that compels us to not live for ourselves, but to live for him. So here's what I suggest. Um, you know, I, let's spend a little time in prayer. And, uh, at, you know, at some point in the future, I think it would be great during this time if we can pray for one another. But let me talk to the leaders of the church before I make that executive decision. <laughs> for your seats. Um, let's really reflect upon the love of Christ. And I, I am sure there are, are people here and people at home online um, who struggle with that, um, being touched by the love of Christ. And I'll be the first to confess it. You know, that, that talk that the speaker gave, uh, it, it's really frightening for me. Um, that, that spiritual death to live in such a way and uh, not to be motivated and compelled by the love of Christ and so I, I do ask that you uh, keep me in prayer as well as uh, that the love of Christ would continue to be the very thing that drives me and compels me, uh, but also for yourselves, uh, also for one another, uh, also for anybody that's serving in this church, for any of the elders and deacons or uh, anybody else. Um, we, we desperately need this love to drive us and motivate us and compel us. Uh, and if it's not, I think it leads to all kinds of spiritually dangerous things. So let's just spend a little bit of time in prayer and reflection.
Uh, God, the first thing we want to say is uh, we're tired of uh, depending upon ourselves for all the things that we depend on. You know, we're a weak people, and, you know, it's hard to sustain um, a consistent, devoted kind of love, you know, even to our uh, families and to our friends and uh, those that we hold dear in our hearts. And uh, it's certainly going to be difficult to do that for ourselves as well. And as uh, I guess the, the narrative in the world is we need more self-love and we need to love ourselves more, uh, you know how weak we are. You know how weak our love is. Uh, you know that to rely on our own sense of acceptance and worth, um, you know, it's building a house on sand uh, to build it upon ourselves and our love. But you've given us some, a, a wonderful gift in the person of Jesus Christ that we can know a love that surpasses any other loves that we may experience here in this world. That you give us access to a love that is full of power to transform us from within, to renew us from within. That you give a love that offers us a true sense of security, a real identity, a true sense of peace, God, we also confess that we don't always feel uh, compelled by that love. Uh, we don't always feel motivated by it. Uh, you know, in our flesh, it's way too easy to live for ourselves first and to even forget you. And we don't want to do the typical thing of uh, doubling down on ourselves and trying to make ourselves better with our own strength. But we want to ask you to help us. Spirit, we pray that you would convict us, give us a deep conviction of the love of Christ in such a way that we would experience the power to motivate us, to drive us, to compel us uh, to live for you. Uh, if any of us have ever had a taste of that, even on the level of human love, we do ask that you would um, make that exponentially more because your love is exponentially greater. God, help us to be a congregation um, that is not overly concerned about our outward appearance, uh, what we show to the world, what we present to others, but help us to be a congregation that is deeply and firmly rooted and convicted in the love of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.